It's about uh, the Monroe Doctrine, uh, which is uh, based on the, uh, one of the U.S. president, James Monroe, uh, in, uh, he, and his declaration in uh, and eight, uh, 1823, uh, when he said that the American continents are henceforth not to be considered as subjects for future col colonization by any European powers. So that to me uh, talks about, it's in a particular moment when uh, uh, most of the uh, uh, countries in Latin America and the Caribbean are uh, 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 declaring their independence from, the, from Spain. And that particular moment that this speech of uh, James Monroe is the beginning of, uh, I would say, of uh, U.S. Uh, economic uh, and military intervention in, in Latin America. It's interesting, too, when we think about the Monroe Doctrine, because at that time, in the 1820s, the United States had, had fairly limited power in the world. So it's interesting to note that even though this, these kind of people's movements are rising up in Latin America, freeing themselves from Spanish oppression and, and imperialism, that when the United States says that, it doesn't really quite yet have the power to, to back up what it said, meaning that basically this is the United States realm. But then as we, as we can see in the late 1900s, the early or late 1800s, early 1900s, that begins to change, and, and the United States does begin to wield this power in the region. Do you want to speak about that and what, what it was doing in that period of time? Yes. Uh, so uh, from from the late 19th to uh, the 20th century, I would say that uh, the particular case of uh, Honduras uh, has been a kind of uh, de facto colony, uh, uh, a U.S. colony. Uh, for example, uh, Honduras from from a, from I would say that from uh, 1870 to uh, 1950. Uh, has been in complete domination of the U.S. Uh, banana companies, and uh, in particular, the, the role that played in this context uh, the United Fruit Company. Uh, that, that was the time where uh, foreign uh, capitalist control of banana industry, for example, in Honduras, Guatemala, uh, got a, a, a complete domination of the elite, uh, of the uh, criollo elite in, in Central America. So the United States' role at this time is, um, is one of protecting its own capital interests, the interests of its large corporations in Latin America, and um, at the same time joining with the elites of the other of the countries um, in C Central America, particularly, but other parts of Latin America too. Why is that relationship so important? Do you think between U.S. elites and um, and the elites? What what role does that play as far as the people in the countries? And why is that? Why was that such an essential role for for capitalists and for the U.S. government um, in this in this process of controlling Latin America? Yeah. Uh, before uh, uh, answer that question, uh, I I would like to mention that also. Uh, during this period of uh, late uh, 19th century to the 20s, uh, US, uh, US mil uh, intervened uh, militarily uh, countries like Dominican Republic, Cuba, Haiti, Mexico, Guatemala, El Salvador, Nicaragua, and Panama. And, uh, and during the beginning of the 20th century, for example, uh, there was uh, eight 
the U.S. intervened eight times uh, Honduras uh, between 1903 to uh, 1955. Uh, 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 and but that time, uh, I would say that the, the main excuse to intervene uh, in Latin America, and for example, in, in Central America or Honduras, uh, the, the main excuse was uh, fighting the, uh, the communists and, and like uh, and defending freedom and democracy. In, in Central America. Uh, I, I say that it was an excuse because uh, after the uh, uh, communist movement war was defeated uh, in the, in the uh, 50 years later, uh, we still have uh, U.S. intervention in, 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 in Central America and Honduras. Uh, so I would say that uh, making profit out of uh, uh, taking uh, uh, land and, and resources uh, in this country has been the great, uh, the, uh, the great uh, objective of uh, U.S. In, in Central America. And just briefly, what, what is the role? Why is the United States, or why has it been, maybe this is an obvious question, but why is it so important to them, the relationship with the elites in these countries, vis-a-vis um, -vis the, the mass population um, of, say, Honduras or Guatemala or El Salvador? Why, why that relationship? Why is that relationship between the elites in those countries so essential to U.S. power brokers um, in the region? Uh, at the same time that... Uh, um Latin America, or in particular Central America, there is a, a, a great history of U.S. intervention, but at the same time, there is a, a, a massive uh, grassroots uh, movement and resistance movement, uh, and we can see that through the, the uh, 20th century. And uh, the national elites having uh, uh, the support of uh, such a, a powerful country uh, makes every uh, even harder for the resistance and for example in Honduras to to overcome and, and change the uh, uh, economic and social inequality uh, inequality that we have seen in, in in Latin America and Central America and it's it's not it's not ever really helpful to be too harsh about a general population, but um, it is the case, from my experience as as a U.S. citizen, that most um, U.S. citizens have very little knowledge of the U.S. role in this region. Meaning, they they would view them if you asked most people, unless they're professors or they're studying this, they would they would probably say that our that our goals and our aims there were were true and just, and they were defending democracy. But if one takes even the slightest glimpse of what was actually going on, we were serving, our country was constantly serving as a force of reaction against any kind of democratic movement, any kind of so, social movement, and that we were always almost universally against the impulses of the people and for the powers of reaction, for the powers of elite and capital, which is quite fascinating, I think. And most U.S. citizens are, are kind of um, in the dark about this reality and don't don't really know this part of uh, U.S. history. There are uh, there are uh, a great example of uh, 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 the U.S. Uh, supporting uh, uh, dictatorship in in Central America. One of them is, uh, for example, Somoza in, in Nicaragua. But uh, another one is in Honduras. Is uh, this is about Tiburcio Carillas Andino. He was a, a a dictatorship uh, uh, put in place by, uh, supported by uh, the United Fruit Company. And uh, 
This dictatorship lasted from uh, 1933 to 1949. For example, that is, is, it's interesting that uh, one year after uh, Carillas uh, took power in, in Honduras uh, with support of uh, the United Fruit Company, in 1934, Carillas founded the Honduran Military Aviation School in, in which uh, he put a U.S. colonel to serve as uh, its commandant in, in Honduras. So this, uh, did, for example, this shows uh, how uh, uh, the U.S. Uh, military has been uh, within the uh, Honduran institutions in, uh, in Honduras, for example. Okay. Um, I think we'll take a break. Do you want to introduce this song? It's um, called Tu Bandera. Um, if you could introduce the song, and then when we come back, I think we'll spend a few minutes discussing what was going on in the 1980s, because that gets us a little bit more to recent times, so we can begin to connect, um, hopefully later in the show, what's going on in Honduras present day. But the 80s is that bridge between the historical context from the you know, 1800s, 1900s, so a little bit more recently, what the Honduras role was in U.S. foreign policy, and then and then in present times. But before we do that, do you want to introduce this song, um, "Tu Bandera"? "Tu Bandera," yeah. Uh, this song is based on uh, the lyric is based on uh, Honduran uh, anthem, and uh, Carla Lara, who is a great artist and activist uh, in Honduras, uh, changed uh, uh, the Honduran anthem uh, lyric. And uh, he dedicated uh, this song to the resistance in, in Honduras. The current resistance. The current resistance. Okay, great. So let's take a listen. Tu bandera es un lampo de cielo Por un bloque de nieve cruzado se ven en su fondo sagrado cinco estrellas de pálido azul en tu emblema que un mar rumoroso con sus ondas bravías escuda me volcán tras la cima desnuda hay un astro de nítida luz tú también oh mi patria te alzaste de tu sueño servil y profundo Tú también enseñaste al mundo Destrozando el infame eslabón Y de tu cielo bendito tras la alta Cabellera del monte salvaje Como un ave de negro plumaje El golpista fugaz se perdió Bandera es un lampo de cielo por un bloque de nieve cruzado y se ven en su fondo sagrado cinco estrellas de pálido azul en tu emblema que un mar rumoroso con sus ondas bravías escuda de un volcán tras la cima desnuda hay un astro de nítida luz. Ok, 
Okay, we're back. Um, you're listening to WVEW, um, 107.7 FM, um, Brattleboro Community Radio, and this is Indigo Radio. We're here every day, from every day, every Sunday from 12 to 1. Um, and today we're speaking about Honduras and the U.S. role in Honduras and, and in Central America more broadly. Who is that song by Genesis? Do you mind? The song was by Carla Lara. Okay, uh, Dubandara. Artist and uh, activist in, in Honduras. Okay, great. Do you, would you mind, we're, we were talking a little bit of the historical context. Let's make a little bridge, um, finish up talking in the 1940s, 1950s, and then bring it forward to the present day in 1980s. Could you, do we set some more historical context for Honduras and what was going on at the time in Central America more broadly? Yeah, so uh, 1954 is an important year in, in, in Central America and for Guatemala and for Honduras because uh, two... Uh, important economic uh, uh, and political events uh, occurred by that time. One of them was uh, that the United Fruit Company, uh, uh, a United Fruit Company uh, plantation in Honduras uh, was used as a military base where the U.S. helped and trained and financed the army that overthrew uh, the democratically elected government in Guatemala, Jacobo Arbenz. Uh, but in the, the same year uh, in Honduras uh, was uh, having a general strike, uh, which is the most, I would say, that is one of the most important political events in, in the history of Honduras in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the first time that uh, uh, workers uh, uh, organized a, a strike uh, against the United Fruit Company. And uh, this event was the beginning of the uh, Honduran worker legislation rights, uh, such as the eight-hour uh, eight work day, including extra pay for work on holidays. These uh, rights that uh, workers uh, uh, won in 1940, uh, 1948 uh, has, has been systematically Interrupted or uh, taken from from worker rights after the coup d'état, mm-hmm. so they are also uh, related with the current events in in Honduras. Okay, and would you mind speaking a little bit about what was going on um, in Honduras in the 1980s? What role was the what what role was Honduras playing in Central America in the 1980s as far as U.S. foreign policy? What what, what was what was happening in Honduras in in during that time? So. Uh, Honduras it, uh, is uh, uh, has a, is strategically uh, uh, between uh, it's in the middle of Latin America and in the eighties uh, was in the middle of free uh, revolutionary process in, in in civil wars in in Central America. Uh, so uh, in the eighties, uh, Honduras was basically used. Uh, as a uh, U.S. Uh, military base, um, and it wasn't the first time. That was, the, I would say, that was the, the second time because in the fifties, Honduras was used as kind of military base to overthrow uh, Jacob Arbenz. And again, in the eighties, uh, happened. But this time was a slightly bit different because uh, the U.S. Uh, built a, a military base in Honduras that. Uh, uh, Honduran called Palmerola, but officially the name is uh, Sotocano. 
and this is um, the context of this is interesting too, as far as Honduras goes, is that Honduras now serving as a proxy, and, and we'll talk about that that base in the present day that it still exists and what its role is in the in the present day. But it's also interesting to note that this base and this military base in Honduras is actually not really an exception for mili for U.S. militaries militarism and imperialism it's actually kind of the rule in other words so um could you speak about that um that it's that how the united states um uses these bases for foreign power and foreign domination yes uh so during the 80s uh so during the 80s, uh, Honduras was, as I say, was used as a, a military base. Uh, uh, the U.S. government built uh, uh, a military base, uh, the Soto Cano. Uh, and basically, uh, the Soto Cano uh, was the, the, uh, the center of the, I would say, the counter-revolutionary uh, counter, uh, process in, in, in Latin America. Okay. Great. So I'm not great <laughs> that it did it, but great. Uh, thank you for discussing that and what its role was. And supporting Sotokano was a place where death squads were trained, where any kind of counter-revolutionary, a lot of the counter-revolutionary activity took place from the, that base um, in, in Sotokano in, in Honduras. Yeah. Yeah. Act as kind of a um, safety net for the capitalists to control the region. And as you said, three different civil wars happening almost simultaneously, Nicaragua, El Salvador, Guatemala. Um, all happening, all many of them, most of them, I think, indigenous movements pushing back against um, U.S. foreign control, U.S. domination. Yes. And in the case of Nicaragua, the Sandinistas succeeded. They they took actually control of the government, and then were attacked after they took control of the government. So, yes. yeah. And in Guatemala, of course, the the more extreme cases, it's almost a form of uh, many scholars believe that that what we did, what the United States did in that in that country, was tantamount to genocide in Guatemala. Is that? Your understanding of what was going on in Guatemala? Uh, so, as as a result of uh, uh, U.S. backing uh, counter-revolutionary process in, in Central America, uh, around uh, fifty uh, thousand uh, death in Nicaragua, mm -hmm. uh, uh, seventy-five death in, in Salvador, and uh, almost uh, uh, two hundred forty thousand uh, death in Guatemala. And that doesn't include, of course, disappeared peoples and displacement. It really is just strictly about death toll. Yeah. And those are small countries, so it's a fairly large death toll when considering the fact that the population of those countries aren't very large. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So we're going to take another break. We'll hear a song um, by Billy Bragg um, entitled um, There's Power in a Union, and then we'll be right back with Adrian Pine. So hang tight. Trenches full of mud, wars 
Power in the Union. Uh, you're listening to Indigo Radio on 107.7 FM, Brattleboro Community Radio. Um, today we're speaking about Honduras and the U.S. role in the country and in Central America more broadly. Um, and Adrian, are you there? I am. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Great. Um, Adrian Pine. Adrian is a professor of um, anthropology and American at American University. Um, who has studied and visited Honduras extensively. She's the author of a book entitled Working Hard, Drinking Hard on Violence and Survival in Honduras. And welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Um, could you speak, we, we're, we're putting um, Honduras and, and the U.S. role in Honduras and Central America more broadly, kind of in a historical context. Would you mind speaking a little bit about the context, uh, what your book was about, and, and what are some of the research and study you've done in Honduras around violence and um, U.S. policy and, and just Honduras, your experience on Honduras in general? Sure. Um, it would be really difficult to overstate the impact of U.S. policy in Honduras. Um, and, you know, in fact, uh, Hondurans generally joke, or not, I mean, it's not really a joke, but... Uh, but um, understand that um, that not, no big decisions can get done at the governmental level without checking in, in with the U.S. Embassy first. Um, as uh, you were just discussing, the U.S. military presence in Honduras um, is uh, has played a huge role, um, a huge and, and horrible role in the history of the Central American region. Um, you know, I mean, the, the, the most sort of well-known uh, time within the United States um, is in the 80s, and as, as you were talking about, when the U.S. served as the, basically as the, as the base for um, repressing rebellions and revolutions in, um, in the three neighboring countries. Um, but uh, but those bases have continued to uh, exist in, in Honduras and have taken on increased importance, in particular since um, since Correa in Ecuador uh, refused to um, refused to uh, renew the lease at the base at Manta in um, in that country, which had been uh, also an important strategic base. So so with Ecuador's uh, leaving the the sort of U.S. based network um, or, or withdrawing in that fashion, Honduras became even more important, and so the United States has um, has invested even more uh, in in that network. And the reason for that, of course, is the United States' um, economic interests uh, in the region. Um, well, I mean, there are the two main uh, issues stemming back to the 1980s again was that. Um, at that period, when the United States was fighting wars um, against uh, against people in El Salvador, Nicaragua, and Guatemala, um, the the real threat was the Cold War threat of the the communist menace. And so, part of 
what Reagan did was to, um, to you know, to try to strengthen the um, the economic development of those regions, but um, uh, through the Caribbean Basin Initiative. But it was a very specific kind of development that was being promoted. Of course, it was you know large corporations, uh, big development, mega projects, um, which, of course, always end up displacing people who are working at a sustenance level and trying to develop their communi- communities to be stronger and, and uh, you know, and, and trying to have better better governance in whatever way they can. Um, so, uh, so that, um, that violence, uh, you know, that U.S. violence, um, that has been both developmental and military uh, has continued through the decades. Um, in the 90s, there was uh, a sort of, in Honduras, a sort of uh, a little bit of a respite from the death squad policies of the 80s, um, but it was short-lived, uh, and there are many reasons for this that I go over in, in my book, but the, I guess the central question of my book um, you know, I started going to Honduras in 96 uh, when I was uh, starting starting grad school at Berkeley. And, um, and I was interested in looking at the maquiladora industry and, um, and what impact that was having on, uh, on, on young workers. And what I found was that people were much more interested in talking to me about gang violence and about the cultural problems that Hondurans had. Um, controlling their violence, basically. And that, that to me, seemed like a pretty messed-up narrative since what I was looking at was um, was neoliberal violence. I was looking at people being displaced from their homes, being, um, uh, you know, denied economic opportunities, being criminalized. Um, and so my question at the time was, you know, why is it that people are participating in these narratives that basically blame themselves for the, um, the, the horrible violence and lack of economic opportunities that have befallen them that, um, from a macro level, could really easily be traced back to U.S. policy um, and, in, you know, of course, in conjunction with the oligarchy in Honduras. Um, and, you know, I found it was, it was very intentional. You know, there was a very intentional media spin um, within the Honduran media corporations that were all owned by the people who were profiting from a narrative in, you know, in which people blamed themselves for their own poverty. Um, and, uh, you know, and also that the, um, the kind of uh, solutions that were being Positive for the violence in Honduras were um, directly imported from the United States and were basically imported from uh, from Rudolph Giuliani, who worked as uh, um, as a consultant for Honduras as well as for many other countries throughout Latin America and the world in the early 2000s through um, Giuliani uh, consultants. And, uh, you know, and basically what they did was to extend his model of criminalizing poverty um, to uh, to the rest of the of the hemisphere um, and other countries in the world. Um, so concretely, uh, you know what that meant in New York was turning um, turning things like houselessness um, into into a crime and and therefore turning people who were victims of a violent capitalist system into criminals without them having to have committed any sort of act. And so that 
put them in jail. But what it did in Honduras was it gave the authorities an excuse to kill them. And so what we saw um, in Honduras in the early 2000s was um, basically a reactivation of the death squads from the 1980s with all of the same actors involved. Um, and, uh, and there was a little bit of pushback against that, um, that death squad activity, which was referred to in Honduras as street cleansing, um, uh, during the, the presidency of Manuel Zelaya, who, um, has, uh, as has probably already been mentioned, was ended uh, in 2009 by a military coup supported by the United States. Um, and, uh, and then following that coup, um, the policy, the zero-tolerance uh, mano dura policy that criminalized uh, poor people and um, people who protested was reactivated um, with great force, so that now, you know, basically saying anything against the government is easily redefined as terrorist, as a terrorist act and serves as a justification um, for killing people in Honduras, for the state to kill people. And, um, and, and these are policies that the U.S. has um, actively supported, uh, in particular since the coup. Um, and it's worth noting that this has been, um, you know, a real bipartisan effort um, in the U.S. Congress. While there are a number of, uh, you know, uh, uh, members of the Progressive Caucus that have stood up to the U.S. support for the brutal Honduran dictatorship that has really been in power um, since uh, since 2009, um, it was it was Hillary Clinton who um, ensured that the coup uh, would would stand. Um, she, uh, but, you know, by by negotiating with the usurping dictator, by giving them legitimacy, by refusing to cease uh, weapons and um, uh, and economic aid to them, um, and uh, and and that's why we're in the situation we're in today, where we're seeing since uh, the November 26 elections, in which the uh, dictator um, falsely, fraudulently has you know claimed victory, um, we've seen nearly 40, pe- 40 people murdered by state security forces for um, for by and large nonviolently protesting. Thank you. That was a very, very thorough answer. I appreciate all that information. There's a lot to, to process there. Could you speak a little bit, um, Assis and I, before you came on, we're speaking about how the the previous justification for U.S. intervention in the region had been, for many, many decades, had been socialism or communism, and that the United States had to fight these, these forces because they threatened democracy and freedom. And now that... Um, with the fall of the Berlin Wall and, and the fall of that boogeyman, the new boogeyman, and you hinted at it, seems to be um, narco-trafficking and uh, terrorism. Could you speak about how the United States definitely shifted its its um, its mantra from one thing to another, but really um, the underlying theme is is economic control as, as far as uh, we were talking about. Is, is that how you would view it? Absolutely. There's a clear line, uh, bet- bet, you know, tying the anti-communist laws of the 1980s to the current batch of anti-terrorist laws. They're doing the same thing, which is basically criminalizing poor people who stand up for their rights. They're using slightly different discourses to do it. But, um, uh, and, and this is, um, 
you know, really been heightened since the coup. Um, uh, Juan Orlando Hernandez was tied to laws in 2010 and more recently, uh, 2017, laws that uh, have increasingly criminalized as terrorist acts, um, uh, you know, media, uh, uh, protesting, including nonviolent protesting, um, people collectively organizing in their communities, um, so, you know, I, I see this as a direct line, and, it, and it's worth mentioning that the um, that the terrorism uh, that the terrorism discourse and sort of legal actions also does precede the coup. So the people who were, you know, the real coup mongers were already working on these things. Um, Oscar Alvarez, for example, who's the nephew of General Alvarez Martinez, who was the leader in the 1980s of Battalion 316. Uh, he, Oscar Alvarez, was the Ministry um, of Security uh, in the early 2000s, and then also again following the coup. Um, he uh, made all of these really ridiculous links between, between gangs and al-Qaeda. He was trying to argue that... Um, that Honduran gangs were actually fronts for Al Qaeda, as a you know, as a right. way of legitimating the repression that they were carrying out against um, young poor men in general who were labeled as gang members, but um, you know, were and weren't, and had and had not committed crimes, um, and, and never went through any sort of due process. So you know, these are these are convenient rhetorics and, you know, they're using the hegemonic um, boogeyman of, of the time, as you've mentioned. Um, and, you know, I mean, they're, they're, they're doing it pretty, pretty effectively. I, I think the new model, uh, the, the 21st century model for, for Latin American coups has um, undergone a shift uh, that really, really began with Honduras um, away from the more obvious um, sort of blatant military takeover and toward a legalistic justification, you know, a constitutional crisis in, in air quotes. Um, we've seen that. Um, we've seen that first in Honduras and in Paraguay, uh, certainly most um, obviously recently in Brazil. Uh, and so using these legalistic redefinitions of, um, uh, of, uh, uh, of criminality, um, that is redefining free speech as a crime, which is what has happened in Honduras, redefining the right to assemble as a crime, um, is really convenient because they're then able to speak to the international community, the Honduran government is, and say, Look, all of these Hondurans are committing crimes. They are criminals, and it um, and it justifies their horrific repression. Right. We are speaking right now with Adrian Pine. She is a professor of anthropology at American University, um, who has studied Honduras and um, U.S. policies in Honduras and Central America extensively. We just have a few minutes left, but Assis had a couple of questions, uh, one or two questions he wanted to ask you as well. So, yeah. Hi, Adrian. Could you talk about? a little bit more about the South Command uh, role in, in Honduras in, in Central America? Um, again, it's hard to overstate the mm -hmm. role of South Command, and in particular I would highlight um, the uh, key role that John Kelly uh, has played now, of course, um, very close to Trump, um, but he was in charge of Southcom uh, and very uh, a very 
energetic, um, enthusiastic uh, proponent uh, of the coup and really did everything he could to ensure that a violent, militarized government stayed in power in Honduras. Um, Southcon has an active PR role uh, or, uh, in, in Honduras, so they will, you know, do a number of really sort of flashy uh, campaigns about, you know, they're, they're, they're actually there for humanitarian aid. But, um, but really those are more than anything just photo ops because when they've had the chance to, um, to really save people, like, for example, in the prison fire in Comayagua, uh, in uh, 2012, when, what was it, over 300 people, I think, uh, yes. died just miles from uh, Sotocano, the main U.S. military base in Honduras, um, they didn't lift a finger. Um, they let all of those prisoners die. Um, and and then communities that, uh, that have received their quote-unquote aid have complained to me in my field work that they never return, that they just come there with a bunch of cameras, they give them expired medications, and and they feel like they're being exploited in the service of, um, of an occupying army that is further repressing them. I see, do you have any final questions for Adrian, or do you think we're... Yeah, uh, just quickly, could you talk uh, a little bit uh, about... Uh, the role of uh, U.S. late evangelicals in, in Honduras and Central America. You uh, recently published uh, an article in Jacobin magazine. Oh, yeah. Um, the U.S., um, yes. I, I mean, U.S. evangelical churches, right-wing evangelical churches, have played a really key role um, both in bringing a sort of logic of Protestant ethic to Honduras, um, where people are much more individually responsible for their own well-being um, and less so for the community, um, but also in supporting violent dictatorships throughout Central America. Um, you know, the, the most horrifying was really the support for Rios Mont that um, Pat Robertson and other organizations provided um, in the height of the, at the height of the genocide. Um, at Rios Mont, of course. Uh, fervent evangelical Protestant, um, but, uh, uh, but, you know, both um, Opus Dei right-wing Catholic um, leaders like the, um, uh, like the cardinal in Honduras, who is called the Cardinal, like the bad, the bad cardinal, mm -hmm. um, Oscar Andres um, uh, Rodriguez Maravillaga, uh, and and evangelical leaders um, have been stalwarts. Hello. Of, of the of the dictatorships that have existed since the coup, they've really completely broken line between church and state. They're often um, appear jointly with with the current dictator to support him and to provide that sort of moral legitimacy, um, and have really uh, centered their message on individual responsibility um, for people's well-being, which is, of course, absurd when you look at the case right now and, you know, and you see hundreds of, of, 
of people armed to the teeth, um, the, the uh, soldiers and military police, you know, who look like robocops, really absurd, um, murdering peasants, uh, like the 76-year-old man who was murdered yesterday, who are merely standing up and saying, we want the person we elected to president to be the president. Or uh, Edwin um, and, Espinal, uh, right, you know, so that was detained, uh, or Edwin Espinal that was detained two days ago, right? Uh, no, no, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm talking about the man who was murdered yesterday. Okay. But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, Edwin Espinal, thankfully, is very much still alive, but has been uh, captured uh, by uh, Honduran National Police and is being falsely accused of terrorism. Um, he's been persecuted uh, by the Honduran uh, government uh, since his then partner was murdered by Honduran um, security forces in 2009. Uh, she was killed by tear gas inhalation, and he has become a very important leader in the resistance to um, to the United States, to imperialist policies, and to um, to the Honduran administration. Well, Adrian, thank you so much for your time and for taking for sharing your knowledge with us. We really appreciate it, and uh, we're going to continue um, <clears throat> the conversation in a little bit. But we appreciate you you taking your time and, and speaking with us today. Thank you. Sure, thank you. Okay, speak with you later. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Well, that was quite interesting and informative, and she had a lot of information to share about, um, and, and really interesting connections that you know I hadn't thought of between um, the connection between, for example, um, Rios Montt, who you and I have studied a bit, and his his connection to these kind of evangelical Protestants is quite interesting, and uh, that's a connection I, I hadn't made before, so quite yeah. quite interesting. Um, we're going to take a minute and take a, another quick song break. Um, do you want to? This is the El Pueblo Unido. Jamás será vencido. <laughs> okay. Do you want to tell us a little bit about this song? Uh, what's what's the song is about, or what? Why you picked it? Yeah, I would say that uh, this song is uh, it's very very important and famous in Latin America and the Caribbean because uh, the me- the main message is uh, how uh, if. Uh, that people united never can be dif- di- uh, uh, divided or defeated. Okay. So it's the message of uh, keep, uh, uh, keep fighting. Keep fighting. And okay. It's cool. widely used in, uh, and known in Latin America. Okay. Well, we'll get here a little bit about this. Um, uh, this is International Illumani. Illumani. Okay. Great. Here we go.
WVEW is underwritten in part by Everyone's Books. Located in downtown Brattleboro at 25 Elliott Street, Everyone's Books is a family-owned, independent bookstore that has been serving the community for over 30 years. They specialize in books about social change, the environment, politics, and travel, and offer a huge range of children's books. You can reach them by phone at 802-254-8160 or online via their website at everyonesbks.com. WVEW thanks everyone's books for their support of this station. All right, everyone's books, a little promo for that. If you've not been to everyone's books on LA Street, give it a shot. It's a pretty cool bookstore. They've got lots of interesting books about revolutionary social change and, and the like, children's books, all manner of things. So please get over there and check that out. This is WVEW LP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. Please remember the views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and guests and not the radio station and the hosts and guests in this case. Um, my name is Henry Zucchini. I am an educator, a local educator, and I'm with also Assis Castellanos, who is another local educator and a graduate student here locally. He's also from Honduras. And today we're speaking about Honduras and U.S. foreign, foreign policy um, in Honduras. And this radio, this radio show, which is called Indigo Radio, is on every Sunday from 12 to from noon to 1. And you can check out our show also on Facebook and Instagram. So please check us out. We're going to finish the show. We have about 10 minutes left looking, kind of coming forward into the present day. Adrian talked about the coup in 2009. And you and I, as he's had not really uh, broached that subject yet. So we're seeing now the fall of communism, essentially not fall of, but the fall of the Berlin Wall, the fall of the kind of a dominant communist power in the Soviet Union um, collapse in that way in, in 1989. And so we have a new excuse now for intervention, which is terrorism or anti-narco trafficking. And so 
Could you tell us, set, set the context of the coup in 2009 and speak about Hillary Clinton's role and the U.S. State Department's role in that coup in 2009 in Honduras? Yes. Uh, so Celaya uh, uh, got in power in 2000, uh, 2008, uh, who, 2005, sorry. Who is Celaya? Uh, Manuel Celaya was uh, the uh, Honduran president that was overthrown by a uh, military, uh, military coup. Okay. Uh, so in 2009, uh, uh, two, uh, two years before the, the coup d'etat, Celaya, uh, uh, I would say, radicalized her, uh, his critique to, for example, uh, uh, economic inequalities in, in, in Honduras. And in particular, he was, Celaya uh, was buried, uh, uh, has a strong uh, critique to uh, the presence of uh, the Soto Cano in, in Honduras. And I would say that uh, that was called the attention of uh, the U.S. government in, 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 in uh, policy in, in Central America. Um, so the coup d'etat uh, was in 2009, June, and part of the uh, resistant movement and uh, uh, was calling about to uh, have back Celaya in, in 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 the government in Honduras, and the, the uh, role of the, the U.S. Uh, State Department by that time um, was under Hillary Clinton. Under, yeah, yeah, under Hillary Clinton was to uh, uh, to have elections at, at the end of uh, 2009, but not having back Celaya, and I would say because of his uh, uh, stand to uh, U.S. policy to, to Honduras. So uh, Hillary Clinton was a, uh, a key player in to, uh, uh, not allowing Celaya uh, to, uh, to take uh, government back in, in Honduras. And to legitimize the coup, it sounds like from what Adrienne said, is the new, the new mantra with, with U.S. policy is to not do these kind of overt coup, coup d'etats like Allende in Chile where you just go in and bomb the crap out of people and then, and then just take over. But this new thing seems to be kind of more of a, a legal process saying there's been a crisis of government. And then the United States, if I remember correctly, and you, could, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but, but very quickly after the coup d'etat takes place, Hillary Clinton and the U.S. government tries to normalize the coup d'etat as, as some kind of, um, you know, electoral crisis that needed to happen. And so they, they're, le they're legitimizing that coup, um, makes, it, makes it stronger, makes them, and make, keeps the lie out of the government. Is that my... Is yeah, my and point? I would say that uh, Hillary Clinton's uh, role was uh, uh, three key events. To, uh, one was... Uh, not allowing Celaya to uh, uh, run again. Running again. Mm -hmm. uh, another one was uh, to legitimize the uh, electoral uh, process mm -hmm. in, during uh, the end of 2009. And after that, to legitimize the government, which was a, a right-wing government mm -hmm. that took power in, since 2000, 2010. Okay, that's great. And that brings us, now we can see, we can roll forward into... Well, not quite the present day. Do you want to touch on Berta just quickly before we get into the, the present? We only have five minutes left, but I, I don't want to leave her side, especially because you know her, knew her personally. Um, but maybe you could speak about Berta and her, her execution and, and 
a little bit about her and then maybe we'll we'll get to the present have a few minutes for the present day um so-called crisis that's happening in honduras but would you speak to berta a little bit and what in the context of her death and, and who she was yeah uh i personally uh uh knew berta uh and berta is a wild uh known uh um activist uh in honduras and i would say uh in Latin America, uh, but that time, 2000, uh, after the coup d'état, uh, uh, the government that took place, uh, took power after two, 2009, has been systematically uh, uh, giving uh, land and uh, in the process of cons concessions mm -hmm. of territories to uh, big corporations. And Which is the ultimate goal always of the policy is to take land or power from the poor and give it to the from the many and give it to the few it seems like that's the ongoing theme as far as land resources go yeah so yeah. Uh, uh berta which is an indigenous uh, activist uh, has been involved in uh trying to uh uh key out a big corporation that uh, has been uh doing development in in, in the region where uh, Berta, uh, with her community, uh, are placed, uh, so Berta was key in uh, to uh, to organize this uh, uh, this movement after the the, the 2009. And uh, when Berta was killed in, in March 2016, uh, everybody was uh, was shocked. Uh, we never uh, thought that. Uh, someone as famous as uh, uh, well-known around Latin America could, could uh, get assassinated. Right, and because that sometimes that fame can make a person slightly untouchable yeah. on some level, but in her case, it didn't protect her. No, it didn't protect her. Yeah. So she's assassinated um, March 2016, Yeah. most likely by right-wing forces within the Honduran um, power elite. Um, What's going on now, present day? We have just a couple minutes left. What, what could you summarize for the audience? What's happening present day as far as the the so-called electoral crisis? We Honduras just had a national election um, at the end of last year. Can you can you speak to what's happening now in Honduras as far as that's concerned? So we uh, we say that uh, the government that took power uh, uh, this year is a continuation of the coup d'état. Because are the same uh, the same politicians that uh, were uh, that participated in, in the coup 2009 coup, uh, and after uh, after the November elections, what is happening now is that uh, uh, the government is terrorizing uh, communities and neighborhoods that uh, government know that uh, are key for the resistance movement. So they are persecuting. Uh, 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 organizers, activists, uh, uh, community uh, leaders, um, um, terrorizing communities, and, uh, and for example, uh, Adrian Pine mentioned, uh, mentioned that uh, Edwin Espinal, which is a uh, well-known uh, activist in Honduras, uh, uh, two days ago he was detained uh, by by the military police. And this part, uh, for us, is part of this uh, uh, process of terrorizing and and showing how much power uh, uh, got the, the government. Even people who are well-known in the movement are not safe, just yeah. like with Berta. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Adrian was saying uh, a 76-year-old man was killed yesterday who was protesting for essentially the same thing, to have the yeah. uh, 
the election thrown out for being fraudulent. And so it's widely regarded by many forces, not just within Honduras, but more broadly, that, that the election this year was a fraudulent election, an illegitimate election. Um, is your understanding that the president, was, and I don't know the current president's name, the, the fraudulent president, will he serve? Is that the trajectory right now that, that Honduras is on? Is he in power and will he serve? Um, or will, he, will there be any legitimate challenge, you think, to his authority? I think that even uh, even though the uh, Honduran government uh, now is terrorizing and persecuting uh, uh, leaders and, and the resistance, I think that at the same time there is an important uh, 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 or organizing around. So I still uh, uh, looking with hope uh, the, the the current events in, in Honduras. So you think there is there is some hope because it seems to be there's been a fairly broad. Sp- widespread people's movement against it. Has he been sworn in, this president that was elected in the, so-called elected in the fall? Has he been sworn in as president, or where is where does that stand right now as far as his, is he in power, or how does, has, how does it stand? He's in power, and uh, he's, uh, in seven days, he's organizing the, the, the big event in which uh, uh, he's going to be officially declared uh, president of Honduras. Okay, and do you expect there's going to be protests and resistance around it's, that? It's already happening. Okay. So what happened two days ago was part of the uh, the resistance movement called for a, a, a national strike, mm-hmm. and they have been called for a national strike for the next uh, week. Okay, leading up to this. Yeah, leading. And up. you said uh, you and I have talked before, but as soon as the very soon after um, the election happened. The U.S. Embassy, even though there's not an official ambassador there right now in the Honduran embassy, the U.S. Embassy in Honduras, they came out and said this this election was legitimate, even though other international bodies have said it wasn't. Is that correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what happened, uh, even though the uh, uh, American state organization uh, didn't recognize that the last election, the U.S. Embassy played is playing a key role in like legitimizing the, the, the Juan Orlando Hernandez government. Okay, well, that's about all the time we have. Um, we, we could probably go another hour or more discussing this because it's an ongoing issue. But thank you so much, Assis, um, for your time and, and uh, your energies fighting against this madness. And once again, this is um, WVEWLP 107.7 FM. This is Indigo Radio. Next week, our show at noon will be about Rikers, Islands, Riker, Rikers Island Prison in New York and about um, the prison industrial complex in general. So stay tuned and, and tune in next week. And uh, with that, we will say good afternoon. Good afternoon. Welcome, friends, to another edition of Economic Update.